so good to be here. And let me just start off by saying, I love your pastors. I've seen them in the good. I've seen them in the bad. Um, how many of you have someone to call when you're in trouble? Raise your hand. How many of you have someone to call when your marriage is in trouble? Raise your hand. How many of you have someone your wife will call even if you don't want her to? <laughs> That's who I am. <laughs> and it, it's actually a, a great privilege. And as you hear a little bit of my story today, it's actually a, a miracle that people would really look to me in marriage. But I so love Pastor Aaron and Erica. And yes, I am that phone call. I, I'm that phone call hey, Pastor, you know, Erica's not submitting to me like you said she should. <laughs> and I said, it's because I told her that she shouldn't. And he goes, ah, well. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's, it's such a joy to be here, and I, I'm, I'm, hopefully this won't be uh, the last time. And, yes, I, I'm Pastor Steve's pastor primarily because of the marriage as well. And uh, pa Pastor Jeff is, Pastor Jeff's amazing. Pastor Jeff calls me Paul Paul. Uh, and we were just together, and we're at the season of our life where everywhere I go, he pays for everything, so he can call me anything he wants, <laughs> so long as he pays for everything, and he does. He does. He calls me, Paul, Paul. Yes, sir. Paul, Paul, here at your service. <laughs> when I was nine years old, raised in the body of Houston, I woke up, and everyone in my family was gone, but, but me and my dad. There were six children in our family, so it's kind of a shock. And I looked over at my dad and I said, where is everyone? And he said, well, your mom and I are going to get a divorce and you're going to live with me. And uh, I was second to the youngest and, and, and the youngest boy. So I'm like, okay, I guess. A few nights later, he came in uh, drunk and he woke me up and he put me in the back of his car. And we began driving through the body of Houston by the ship channel. And finally, we stopped outside of a bar. And we waited till about 2 o'clock in the morning, and, and my mom came walking out of the bar with another man. And my dad woke me up just nine years old, and he, he drug me across the way, and he began to beat the man up. And, and then he shoved me into my mother's face, and he said, look at your mother. She's a prostitute. She's a whore. And then he pulled out a knife, and he stabbed both the back tires of the car, her station wagon, that she and the man jumped in, and, and they began driving down the road. My dad and I got in his car and we began to ram them down the road. And I think I made a decision, probably a decision that some of you've made at one point or another in your life. I didn't know it. I could say it looking back now. But the decision was, I don't ever want anyone to hurt me this much again. So, so if I become hard and if I become bitter and if I become unforgiving and resentful, then that can be a wall that protects me from ever letting this happen to me again. But when you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, it's not just an invitation to not be hurt. It's an invitation for the enemy to enter into your life. And I, I began just a life of just resentfulness and bitterness and turned into drugs and immorality and gangs and and by the time I was 14 years old, I wasn't a kid. I was just a small person. Because all of the things that I should not have been exposed to or should not have experienced, I experienced and I was exposed to. And it, it, my life was a mess. 
I have four sisters. They got pregnant 13, 14, and 15. They were a mess. My dad was on his way to being married five times. The woman who ran after my mother, which was my mother's best friend, had been married three times. The woman who ran after her had been married three times. The woman who ran after married after her had been married two times. I have more relatives than Alex Haley's at Roots. I don't have a family tree. I got a family bush. I'm related to every Mexican in the world, and several of those women were white. I might be related to you. <laughs> My older brother was my hero, and he was a drug dealer. And, of course, I told you about my sisters. They all dropped out of school, and so uh, it was my heritage to drop out of school as well. And, and my life was just a mess. It was a mess. I can remember as a nine-year-old kid sitting on the front porch of my house after my mom and dad had fought again and the police had come again and sitting on the front porch of my house saying, I don't know how. But one day, my kids aren't going to go through this hell. One day. I don't know how. But how many of you know that God hears our cries even when we're children? So my life was a mess. Drugs, gangs, failing out of school. I was going to follow along with all my other siblings that had dropped out of school and messed their lives up. But a miracle was about to happen in my life. I didn't know it. There was a, a white pastor who worked at a little, small, spirit-filled church. Probably about 150 people. You know, the barrio was usually a place where it was really nice at one time, and over time it disintegrates, and finally it becomes the hood. And so this little church, which had 150 people and two white pastors, and the average age was probably about 65, and at that time, I thought 65 was like 265. Remember those days? <laughs> and this man was a part-time youth pastor, and his father-in-law was the pastor, and, and he knew nothing about working with inner-city kids. He was a redneck guy from Fort Worth, and he, 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 just, he just knew that kids were a mess everywhere that he looked. It was the middle of integration. At that time, they were beginning to bus kids from black schools to white schools so they could get an equal education. Well, at that time, I don't know if you know this or not, but Mexicans were not considered to be Mexicans. They were considered to be white because the Supreme Court said whoever wasn't black was white. My birth certificate actually says I'm white. Later on, I found out I was a Chicano. Not long after that, I found out I was a Latino. Not long after that, I found out I was a Hispanic. So pray for me while I find myself. <laughs> so what they ended up doing is busing kids from the black ghetto to the Mexican ghetto. And so my junior high school of 2000 became 60% Mexican, 39% black, and 1% white. How many of you remember integration? And everybody wanted power. The brothers were saying, we want black power. The Mexicans were saying, we want Chicano power. <laughs> and the whites were saying, we want out. Where's the door? And in the middle of this, this pastor drives by our school, 2,000 kids, full-time narcotics officers and police officers, race riots weekly. And he drove by and he just prayed and he said, God, would you give me that school? And the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart and said, I've given it to you. Go and tell the principal. So with nothing to lose and just obedience to that voice, he, he got out of his car and he went and he knocked on the principal's door and he said to the principal, he said, sir, I know you don't know me, but my name is Pastor Keith, and I work in a little church here down the road. I know enough to know that y'all are having a lot of racial problems and problems in the school, and I've been praying for your school. 
And I feel like if you let me come and speak in your school, things can change. The principal, Mr. Skeins, looked at him and he said, Sir, do, do, do you realize who Madeline Murray O'Hare is? Now, many of you here are too younger. Anybody remember Madeline Murray O'Hare? She was from Austin, Texas. And in 1963, she sued the public school systems of Texas for prayer. And she got prayer taken out of every school in America. So if you don't think one person can make a difference, you're wrong. And he said, Madeline Murray O'Hare from, from, from Austin, Texas, got prayer taken out of every school in America. By, it, it took a while through the suit, and by 1970, all the prayers had stopped. I, I, I could not. If I let you here in this school as a pastor, it could cost me my job. And the pastor looked at him and said, well, what harm could it do? And the principal said, you're right. We have open solicitation of prostitution, open use of drugs, kids smoking weed, walking down the halls. And the principal said, I've been beat up three times this year by students. He said, what would you like to do? He said, I'd like to bring in a band and, and, and let them play and have a school assembly. And then I'll speak. That, that's when I came into the story because that morning I did before school, the middle of eighth grade, what I did every morning before school, me and, me and my friends, you know, who thought we invented weed. That was before gummy bears. That was before uh, vapes. That was before brownies. That was before, what am I missing? How do you know? So that was before I missed all of that. And so um, I just got through smoking weed before school. This was the days of Cheech and Chong. I'm sure some of you remember those. Yeah, you were smoking weed too with Cheech and Chong. And, and so... Uh, we came walking into school. My hair was about down to here. Me and my friends of the band was playing. We thought that was cool. And then this guy got up and started speaking. And quite honestly, I don't remember anything that he said. But about 5.30 that evening, a, a knock came at my door. And there was a beautiful girl. Her dad was white. Her mama was Mexican that lived across the street from me. And her name was Dolores. And Dolores said, hey, Jacob, all those people that were at school today, they're coming back tonight. You want to go with me? And I said, Dolores, I, I, I mean, it was okay, but the guy got up and spoke. I mean, I'm not interested in any of that. And she kind of had a special way of looking at me. <laughs> and she said, well, would you go for me? And I said, will you kiss me if I go? <laughs> Girls, I don't suggest this as a mode of evangelism. <laughs> and so she said, yes. I said, okay, if you kiss me, I'll go. So with that holy motive, I went to the meeting that night. <laughs> to my surprise, there were a thousand kids. Half the school showed up. It was packed. Dolores went, sat up at the front with all of our friends, and I sat back in the back with my boys, and we, I don't remember what we did. We didn't listen for sure. At the end of the meeting, they, they, they said, if, if you're here and you want to give your life to Christ, come forward. And man, almost all the kids came forward and and then they broke up all the, all the groups into, into classrooms, and they sent counselors from the band to counsel in each room. This was a band from, from California at that time in the middle of the Jesus movement, and, and they sent them there. And, and so I, I waited for about 15 minutes for Dolores because she went up, and, and after 15 minutes, I just went and started not looking in, in doors. 
you know, school door rooms that are glass to, to see where Dolores was. And when I found the room that she was in, I opened up the door and I said, hey, Dolores, it's time for us to go. You owe me something. <laughs> and there was an African-American counselor who was leading the, the, the conversation of all the kids that had responded to commit their life to Christ. And he looked over at me and he said, did you want to talk to me? Now, let me just say, share something with you that, that, that you should know if you live in San Antonio. There may be a black or Mexican atheist. I've never met him. Because if he would have told his abuelita that, she would have beat him till he saw Jesus face to face. I mean, we name our children Jesus. Come on. There are many Jesuses in prison and not for preaching the gospel. So, I, I mean, I was respectful. I was God-fearing even though I wasn't God-following. And so, I, I, I mean, I, I said, you know, yeah, I would really like to talk to you, but me and Dolores, we really got to go. And I grabbed her, and we started turning to walk, and he said, no, we, she said, no, we don't. We got plenty of time, Jacob. It was kind of like that awkward moment, you know, where you get hot all over your body. And so I just sat down, and then he began to tell me something that I'd never heard my entire life. He said, Jacob, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your mom is or your dad is. It doesn't matter what your brothers or sisters have done or even what you've done. There is a God that loved you, that gave his son to die for you. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And if you will surrender to him, you can know him and you can know that plan and purpose. Would you like that? And I looked at him and said, would I like that? That's all I've ever wanted in my whole life. I, I, I don't have to be like my brother. I don't have to be like my sisters. I don't have to be like my dad or my mom who's running a bar. I, I, I would love to know that. And that African-American counselor prayed with me that day, and I surrendered my life to Christ. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know what that meant. I just knew that when we got through praying, something lifted off of me, and a peace came over me. So I went home. I was so excited. I told my dad and my stepmom, and they got so excited, they kicked me out of the house. So at 14 and a half, I was on my own, but that's where I felt I was most of the time. So I called my mom and I said, Mom, dad, dad kicked me out of the house. Dad and Ivy, which was, remember, that was her ex-best friend. He kicked me out of the house and, and could, could I come and live with you? And she said, yes. And she gave me the address. I didn't know where it was, but I began following as someone dropped me off. And finally, we got to the body of Houston right by the ship channel, 76 in Canal. For anybody that knows Houston, it's called Little Mexico. And we stopped at a yellow building with black and red letters. And on the outside, it said the Paras Lounge. I, I got down and my friend dropped me off and I walked in and my mom came walking out from behind the bar and she had on hot pants and go-go boots. How many of you old enough to remember those? Raise your hand. How many of you wore them? Don't raise your hand. You'll scar your children and grandchildren. And I looked at her and I said, Mama, what is this? And she said, Son, if you're going to live with me, this is home. I live in half the duplex that's joined to this. And for the next three and a half years, every day when I came home from school, 
I worked and served beer in my mother's lounge, but that's where I began to preach the gospel. My pastor began to pick me up every week, three or four times a week, uh, church Sunday morning, church Sunday night, Tuesday night a teaching, Wednesday night church, Friday night witnessing on the streets, Saturday night a youth group gathering, and then we'd start all over again on Sunday. That's where my ministry began. My mother had pictures, centerfolds this big of unclothed women all over the walls. Between them all, I put up a little sign that said, repent, no drunks will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> my mother would tell me, you, son, you have to stop preaching to these people. I'm going, I don't want to work here. I'm underage. If I'm going to work here, I'm going to preach. I was actually preaching for survival. When I was uh, 17 and a half years old, my pastor announced that he was going to be moving to Waco to work at a church with his father-in-law who had now transitioned on to Waco. And, and I walked up to him at the end of service, said, if you leave, what happens to me? He said, well, ask your mom if she'll sign papers and you can go. I ran to my mama's bar, <laughs> asked her, came back that night, said, she said I could go. I moved with my pastor, and for the next 10 years, he raised me like his own son. Today, by God's mercy and grace, I am the first person in four generations of my family to be faithfully married to one person. I've been married for 40 years. I have several sons, three of them are pastors. My daughter is a missionary with YWAM. And by God's mercy and grace, I've been privileged to serve in a community for many, many years where God is doing amazing things. Do you know why? Because God hears little boys' prayers. Because he hears our cry. Today, I just, in, in these last 10 minutes, I just want to tell you how broken, I don't have to think how broken our culture is. It's so incredibly broken. And the reason it's so broken is the reason we've got so far away from God who is Father, because those of us who are supposed to represent Him, fathers, you and I are the only people that have the same title that God does. Father. Father. You ever talk to an atheist? Ask him this question. Tell me about your relationship with your father. Because behind every single person who's lost their faith in God is usually a child that lost their faith in their father. You see, God intended from the very beginning family to be his idea. Matter of fact, when I did school assemblies, I spoke to 2 million students in public schools on drugs, drinking, and abstinence in about a 25-year period. And it didn't matter if I was in the inner city of New Orleans or if I was in the inner city of Chicago or if I was at some white affluent school. I would always begin by saying the same thing, speaking to 1,000, 2,000 kids. I'd grab the microphone and I'd say, I want to tell you what the single greatest dream is of every person in this whole room. And of course, you know, they're looking at you you know, depending on where they're coming from. 
you know, brothers would look at me, you know, what a white boy. No, I mean, you, if you're not black, you're white. You know, my little Mexican homies like, really, for sure, you don't know me. <laughs> little white kids like, really, like you think you know. <laughs> and I do know. And it's actually the greatest desire of every person sitting in this room right now. And you know what it is? It's either to come from a happy family or to one day give your children one. Do you know why? Because family was God's idea. The world is in the condition it's in because God's idea has been replaced by government's idea. And we found out how that works. God's heart and God's desire in this building is for this to be not a gathering on Sunday morning, but to be a family that gathers together on Sunday morning, but does life together during the week. Here's what the scripture says in Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is this God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in what? In families. He sets prisoners free and gives them joy. But he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. God's heart and God's desire is to give every born-again child of God three things. The first thing is a family. If God is your father, then this is your family. Our church, you know, Louisiana, much Hispanics are the primary group here. As now, I guess they're a minority here, a majority here, not a minority. A white friend of mine in our church, one of our trustees, landed in San Antonio one time. He'd never been here. And he walked up to the one white guy he saw at the Alamo. He goes, why are there so many Mexicans here? And the guy said, because this used to be Mexico. And he went, oh, now it makes sense. Well, in, in Louisiana, it's African-American. And if you know very much about the Southern culture there, there is the black Catholic church and the black Baptist church. There's the white Baptist church and the white Catholic church. And so when we began our church, we not only wanted it to be non-denominational, but we wanted it to look like heaven and not like one side of town or the other. So pre-COVID, we were the largest African-American church in our region. We had 3,500 African-Americans attending one of our campuses every weekend. You see, if God is your father, then brown people and black people and white people are your brother and sister. God wants to give every one of us a family. And some of us all come from different places. How many of you been in other churches before you came here? Raise your hand. How many of you ever hurt in other churches? Raise your hand. How many left because you were hurt? Don't raise your hand. Just be quiet and don't complain about the other person. A lot of times people come and, and do you know why they're afraid of family? So when I use that term family, you think, Pastor, I, I, you know, I came from a bad family. I don't want anything like that. Or I came from a church where I got hurt. Many people build up walls just like I did when I was a kid because you don't ever want to be hurt. Can I share something with you? Every human being you know and you're close to is going to hurt you. You just have to decide which relationships are worth suffering for. Yeah. Wow. 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 
Because I'm human, I don't do some things imperfectly. I do everything imperfectly. So do you. That's why one of the things that Jesus said on the cross that we should think often when people hurt us or offend us is, Father, forgive them for they, what? They, they, they don't know what they do. I love to say it like this. Jesus saved my soul, but the church of Jesus saved my life. I received Christ in a junior high school, but my soul was restored and redeemed, and I gained healthy relationships, even with people that hurt me and disappointed me, in God's house. Church at its worst is a business, and at its best is a family. At its best, it's a family. What is spiritual family? Listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus is preaching. There's a large crowd. He's gone from being obscure to being famous. He's gone from being rejected to being the one everyone reveres. And they come to him. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 47, and one said to him, look, Jesus, your mother and them. That's what we say in Louisiana. Your mama and them. And your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, what? Who is my mother and who are my? And then he stretched his hand towards his who? His disciples. And he says, here is my mother and my sister and my brothers. To him, family was spiritual family. And if this church is built right, and if you do life right, you're going to find yourself closer to some people that look different than you, that were raised in different homes than you, that don't even have your last name, and you are closer to them in spirit than you've ever been to anybody in flesh and blood. How do I become a part of spiritual family? How do I really become a part? How can I really know? I don't believe you joined a church. I believe that God joins you. This isn't like, which is the best Mexican restaurant in town? Well, I, mi tierra, that's downtown. That's the old one. That's the real, original. Anything outside of there is fake. Which, by the way, that's what I believe. <laughs> how, how, how do you? Well, God joins you. How, how does God join you? I believe he does it three very simple ways. Number one, he does it by revelation. By revelation. We prayed for a precious young lady in our church. She's actually from Texas A&M. Her father's a professor there. Bree grew up all FFA, all things FFA. Bree's about 5'10", blonde hair, beautiful girl, but definitely... Every time you see her walk, you can see her FFA jacket on her some kind of way. In her brokenness and heard of her parents getting divorced, she got an abusive relationship with some guy from Louisiana, moved to our area. He regularly physically abused her. She soothed herself with drugs and, and with alcohol. And one night decided that she was going to just get so drunk and take so many pills that she would just die. 
This story is exactly how it happened. And if she was here, she would tell you that. Somehow she ended up on Sunday morning going from overdosing to sitting in the pew of our Savior's church on a Sunday morning, and she does not even know how she got there. But she was born again. God changed her life. She's been on staff with us for the last five years. It's revelation. It's revelation. You don't join a church. God joins you. Do you remember when you, when you met your future mate? How many of you remember that? Okay, please raise your hand even if you don't remember, and God will absolve you later just to make your mate feel good. I, I mean, you, did, did you just walk over there and go, hey, I mean, I, I, it would have been foolish if I would have walked up to Michelle and said, congratulations, you just won the Brown Powerball Lottery. <laughs> the Mega Billions jackpot is yours. No, no, you, it, it's a, you know, like, like, wow, there could be something there. And then it went from revelation, she, she's, she, she could be the one to relationship. Then you started building. Hi, my name's Jacob. What's your name? Michelle. Wow. I love that. That's French. Michelle. Michelle. My bad. Well, I love that. I, okay. Then you start, could you, uh, listen, what are you doing after church? Would you, would you like to go and have lunch? A bunch of guys are going from the youth group or, you know, college ministry and we're going, okay. You begin building relationally. Again, you don't join the church. God joins you. Look right here. How many of you are married? How many of you have ever been offended being married? Okay. As a matter of fact, if you haven't been offended, you're actually not married. You're faking. Because they don't know the real you yet. Do you end marriage when you get offended? Do you know how many people leave their church when they get offended? Can you have family if you, if you don't work through those things? <clears throat> Do you know healthy, in a healthy relationship, conflict creates intimacy? Because what's hidden now has to come out and you have to deal with it. You, everybody, I mean, you, you know when you walk in and go, hey, honey, what's going on? Nothing. Why? <laughs> no, I was, just, I was just saying. I mean... <laughs> Okay, and you know, look, I'm going to shut up. There's a fire there. I'm not going to throw logs on it. Okay, and you just kind of, you are going to be offended. Remember what I said? All people are going to hurt you. You just have to decide which relationships are worth suffering for. And for people that don't want to get hurt, listen, if you don't want to get hurt, number one, don't get married. And number two, for God's sakes, don't have children. Because they grow up to become just like you. And it's horrible. Here's the third way. is generationally. You see, when you get planted in the house of God and you do it right, you not only choose a house for yourself, you choose a house for your children. 
did y'all appreciate when Pastor Steve Robinson comes? I call him my rich, white, educated son. He graduated from Tulane. I barely graduated from high school. But I've been his pastor for 28 years. My son, Joseph, who's 31, is now his son's pastor. I've actually lived long enough pastoring someone to literally, my children are pastoring their children. When God joins you to a house, in that house could be the people you do life with, the people that walk with you through the most difficult moments of your life, the future mate of your children. It's by revelation. It's by relationship. And then it's generationally. It's generationally. My pastor, who led me to Christ when I was 14 years old, he is still like my daddy today. He's 81 years old and still preaching like a man from another planet. Still today, we speak still every week, sometimes more than once a week. I got a chance to go up and honor him at his 40th anniversary at that specific church and his almost 60th wedding anniversary. He has many sons like me. It was him that showed me how to be a husband and a father and a man. That only comes through divine joining. One of the great tragedies is, is that people never go and stay long enough to get planted and discover the sweet fruit that lies. It's like being married a long time. There's fruit you never tasted. You've been married for 30 or 40 years. You never taste it. Today, I pray that God will give you a revelation of where he's planted you that you'll build there relationally. And that one day, years from now, just like at our church, there are people that say, we started a building just like this, an old honky-tonk that Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings played in. And we had orange plastic chairs. And there are people that walk around and go, we were in orange chairs. (laughs) Before there was all these campuses and the largest churches across the state and spread out, we were there. We saw it in the beginning. God planted us here. We built relationally. Many of their children are in ministry right now. That's God's heart, God's desire for you. 